welcome to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. I'm Leanne, and I'm sitting down with Lauren Ball today, who's going to join me and talk about life as an SLP on inpatient rehab. Hi, Lauren. Hey, Leanne. How's it going? (laughs) Oh, good. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm always like a bit surprised that people are like, yeah, sure, I'll talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's super cool that you've started this. We need more speech podcasts. We do. I'm like really excited to get the ball rolling yeah. and to see what this motivates other people to do too. And yeah. now we can all kind of contribute to learning things together. For sure. I love, love it. it. Mm-hmm. All right, Lauren, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Who okay. are you? All right. So I'm a speech language pathologist uh, currently working in inpatient rehab. So um, I have experience in skilled nursing facilities, um, which is probably the closest to rehab if we think about kind of how things work but Mm -hmm. um currently working in rehab and so I'll kind of talk a little bit about what life in rehab is like and um how it's different from all the other settings that a speech pathologist might find themselves in so I like how you keep referring to inpatient rehab as just rehab like the rest of us aren't doing (laughs) rehab either I know that's just what everybody calls it where I work so that's kind of what I'm stuck to so when I say rehab know that I'm referring to inpatient rehab as opposed to my primary (laughs) setting as outpatient rehab. No, everyone else is also rehabilitating. Yeah. (laughs) We just call it rehab. Okay, that's fine. I won't mess with you anymore about it, I promise. (laughs) All right. So, inpatient rehab. So typically, or if we're thinking about the, the overall picture of inpatient rehab, is, um, you know, rehabilitating patients from some sort of acute medical incident, um, thinking about their recovery physically and medically, Mm -hmm. and then also cognitively or from some of our other areas, um, trying to help them just regain as much of their prior level as function as possible. And whether or not that's possible in a short period of time, we try and help them regain as much as they can quickly in order to be able to be safe enough to go home. Right, because that's that's the goal. Now, you're getting patients from where? Acute. Right, so, so these are patients who have had acute stays in a hospital, and it's a hospital to inpatient rehab transfer. Correct, yeah. And then, of course, our goal once they leave inpatient rehab is to go home. Yep. And then once they get home, um, they could have home health therapy if they still need a continuation of therapy, but now they're safe to be at home, mm-hmm. ideally. That's the plan. <laughs> um, or then they can go straight to outpatient therapy once they're back home. Yes. Um, so from the acute rehab hospital, there's a couple options for people to go. They could either go to skilled nursing or to inpatient rehab. What makes a good candidate for inpatient rehab? Like, Why would a patient go to inpatient rehab and not a SNF or skilled nursing facility? So in order for a patient to um, be accepted to inpatient rehab, there has to be a couple pieces in place. Um, First and foremost, they have to be able to tolerate the intensity of therapy that comes with inpatient rehab. So patients have to um, participate in a minimum of three hours a day, five days a week to um, work in inpatient rehab. And then they also have to have um, kind of a sweet spot of medical complexity where they're still sick and that they require daily physician oversight, but... And 24-hour nursing care. Correct. Mm -hmm. But not too sick 
where they can't participate in the therapies or we can't manage their medical complexities in a rehab setting and they need to go back to the acute hospital. So um, kind of depends on a lot of different things and, you know, that patient's specific level of function and also kind of just what the patient and family want too. Mm-hmm. Um, some people just need kind of a slower, slower recovery, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I'd say that's kind of a good description of a uh, skilled nursing right. facility. Not that lower means any less. It doesn't no, at yeah. all. It just isn't, like, inpatient rehab just has that, like, it's intensive. Mm-hmm. It's very focused. It's very work-driven. And so you need to be game for that. You need to be motivated for that. Yeah, exactly. And um, if that's not your ball game, you don't think you can pony up to the plate for that, then skilled nursing would be where you would get very good care at a lower and slower right. intensity and rate. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we also, too, at our hospital have to think about what is a patient's particular level of support for when they leave. So we kind of need to make sure that there's going to be a likelihood of somebody being able to help them out a little bit when they leave us. Right, because they're not going to be, like, completely healed, fully independent, fully functional. They're going to need some assistance, and and that could take shape in a lot of different ways that they need that assistance. Right. Especially with how they're pushing for shorter lengths of stay in rehab environments than they used to. You know, typically, I think the average for us is two to four weeks Mm -hmm. for a length of stay. And that's pretty short when we think about recovery from a stroke or a brain injury or some sort of major medical event. It's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, yeah. And so we realize that these people aren't going to necessarily be you know, right back to their prior level of function when they leave us. So we kind of have to think about if it's possible to get them to a safe place in that short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And those are the people who are kind of the perfect fit for inpatient rehab. Yeah. Um, So what types of patients do you work with and what kind of diagnoses do you get on um, your inpatient rehab? Because... They're different from place to place. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. That's actually one of my favorite things about rehab. We get such a variety of patients. You really kind of see a little bit of everything. Um, So we get, obviously, a ton of patients um, that went through a different neurological event. So stroke, brain injury, kind of the primary things we think of. Um, In our facility, we get a lot of spinal cord injury. We get amputees, trauma, transplants. Um, we get patients in for things like an MS exacerbation, mm-hmm. um, ALS, Parkinson's, myasthenia gravis. Mm-hmm. We have lots of encephalopathy, cancer, mm-hmm. brain mm-hmm. tumors. Mm-hmm. We get burns, just generalized stability. Yeah, you know we we see it all, and almost all of our patients have multiple comorbidities and yeah. very complex medical courses and histories, and that's kind of what makes it especially challenging, but also kind of fun and complex, and it's yeah. really fascinating. You know, the other thing I like about your facility, too, is I feel like you get a really well-rounded population in terms of socioeconomic background and ethnicities. Yes. So almost every time I'm over there, there's an interpreter on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that'll make for an interesting session. It sure does. <laughs> you know, you've really got to push yourself to provide applicable materials for that session. Mm -hmm. You've got to know how to be able to treat people at all different levels with all different priorities. Yeah. Because a priority for you and me might be totally different from somebody else 
at a different stage of life uh, with a different background. And so that to me adds a lot, a, a whole nother layer of complexity that I think is really awesome and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's, it's really cool to see people from all different walks of life and backgrounds and cultures yes. and be able to kind of pull something together to try and help them get back to what actually matters to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so t- talk to me about some of the materials that you'll use for treatment. And have you ever generated any of your own materials? So when we think about materials for rehab, it's actually kind of a funny thing. I feel like there's not really any group of materials that I kind of gravitate towards anymore. Um, so I'll start by saying try and minimize the use of workbooks and worksheets. Mm-hmm. We know that those are very controversial at this point, especially. <laughs> if you are on Facebook, SLP groups, girl, you better run and hide if you're yes. using workbooks and worksheets. <laughs> yes, and you know, there are a couple hidden gems in some workbooks oh, yeah. that I might oh, pull. Oh, yeah, no. I'm not going to burn all my books. Right. But I'm also not going to use them for every single patient, every single session for the whole time. They have their place. Right. And it is not constant use. Yeah. 100% (laughs) agree. Um, So typically when I see a patient and I'm trying to start my treatment plan from the bottom up, the first thing I'll do is kind of ask the patient and ask myself, okay, number one, what do they need to be able to do? Hmm. What do they want to to be able to do what's important to them yes, and then kind of go from there. So there's not really any specific material that's like my go-to. It really just kind of depends. Um, like I said, I try and avoid workbooks mm-hmm. as much as I can because we want the patient to actually be practicing the thing that they need to do, which is not going to be workbooks. They're right. not going to go home and sit and do workbooks all day. Um, it Again, it really just depends on each patient, what's important to them. Um, and I literally want to practice the task that they have to do at home, if at all possible. Yes. So whether that's, um, you know, practicing phone calls, practicing cooking and baking, um, medication management. Oh, that's, that's my favorite. Yeah. I love it. I will print off their list from their medical records and have them, you know, read them off to me, learn what it is that they're taking, why they're taking it, right. and how to sort it. Yeah. Um, now... I haven't quite figured out a way other than like tic tacs and beads, yeah. you know, to do that. Um, but that's a big part of it to be able mm-hmm. to read and comprehend the label and make sense of a box if that's what they're going to be using. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of one of those things. What do they need to be able to do at home? Can they pay their bills? Can they use their cell phone? Can they manage a calendar? Um, and then again, thinking of, you know, sometimes we get. Quite often we get patients who want to go back to work. So mm-hmm. what's their workflow? How can we simulate that? You know, whether it's like more constructional and hands-on tasks from a cognitive standpoint um, or even sometimes walking and talking, a patient being able to kind of do two things at once from yes. that standpoint. Um, yes. Sometimes it's thinking about what's important to them right here and right now in rehab. So training the call light, working on transfer sequences, um, filling out their hospital menu so they can have the food that they want to eat, you know, depending on what their goal is, whether it's visual scanning or reading comprehension or just sustained attention. You can use anything Mm -hmm. that's functional and important to them. Um, And then, you know, I'm pretty big on strategies too, Mm -hmm. depending on 
you know, what, what the goal is and, and all that, of course, but practicing strategies within those tasks that are important to them, whether that's using their cell phone as a memory aid and using all the apps and tools that we all use. Uh-huh. Oh, Why yeah. Why not just no. train them to use it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I try to tell people, like, I use these strategies all the time. Right. It's the only way I know what I'm doing tomorrow. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No idea. As soon as a friend is like, hey, you want to go out to eat on Friday? I'm like, yeah, sure. I whip out my phone and I put that in my calendar immediately. Right. And so there's your therapy, you know. You can have mm-hmm. them record their therapy schedule for the day and have them have to be reminded to get there on their own or to know that the therapist is coming. Um, Even more low-tech supports like visuals in their room or printed sequences for the things that they need to be doing, Uh, memory books. We kind of use those quite often if if it's appropriate for that patient. Um, Or even just modifying the environment, kind of setting up their room to be more conducive to independence and and things like that in terms of cognition. So not really any specific materials, just uh-huh. kind of what is it that they need to do and let's do that task. Nice. So. Now how might you how might you um, change a patient's room to assist them like you just mentioned? Well, a lot of times at our facility, um, I think of that in terms of like the the visual neglect patients, mm-hmm. making sure they're in a room where, people enter on the side that they're, they don't tend to attend to. So we can kind of work on some of that. Um, let's see, what are some things I've done? What about like for a TBI patient? How do you modify their environment? Low stimulation environments. It's a big one. Mm -hmm. And a lot of training for families too on kind of what that looks like. But, um, well, walk me through that. Yeah. So we, a lot of times, put patients on low-stim protocols if it's a patient with, like, a brain injury or some sort of related event where we want to minimize visitors to one or two people in the room. Mm-hmm. We want to minimize the amount of conversations happening at a time. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of times people don't realize that when somebody's had a brain injury, you don't want five people talking over each other. Um, want to turn off the TV, you know, Minimize background noise. Sometimes even lighting is a big, um, a big part of that too. That kind of overstimulation and agitation. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a way you might modify the room. Um, on the other hand, kind of working with people to regulate their sleep wake cycles. These people who kind of are in a delirium, mm-hmm. um, yeah. modifying the room so that they know it's daytime and we have to open the blinds and keep the lights on and have them out of bed. Just little things like that. Um, are some things where we can kind of offer insights from a cognitive standpoint. Nice. Very nice. Um, well, where do you hold your treatment sessions? So that one, again, kind of totally depends on the day, the patient, um, what we need to be working on. If all the stars align and everything works out perfectly, <laughs> I prefer to see them in our speech offices. Um, we're pretty lucky that we have a room designated for speech therapy. Uh And I think just bringing patients into a room where they're sitting at a desk or a table, you know, they're not laying in bed. They don't have all their distractions in their room. I just feel like they take it more seriously. Yes. And it's, yeah, it's so much better. Um, sometimes that doesn't work out. You know, if, if we only have a 30 minute session and this patient is in bed and they're going to need to be hoyered out of bed and it's going to take a long time to get them up in the chair. Sometimes we just do it right where they're at and, and that's fine too. Um, sometimes the room is preferable, you know, if you're wanting to target, um, 
things that are in the room, like I mentioned with like the call light or um, sometimes even sequencing their grooming tasks in the bathroom, you know, while being careful not to be an OT. A lot of times Mm -hmm. some of the biggest issues are cognition and working on some of those things. If we're working on language or aphasia, having their own belongings and pictures of their families, Mm -hmm. sometimes being in the room is the best thing. Yeah. Um, Sometimes we also will work with patients in the dining area for meal group. Mm -hmm. Um, So before I get into this, let's just be clear that we know Mm -hmm. that watching patients eat is not (laughs) therapy. I love your (laughs) qualification there. Accurate, accurate. Yeah, we don't sit and watch people eat. Right. We don't do that. We know that's not good. But, you know, sometimes there is a place to see a patient during a meal, whether that's helping with carryover of the swallow strategies. Again, mm-hmm. it could be more like a cognitive session. Sometimes patients even, um, we can work on their visual scanning techniques to find all the items on their tray or, again, yeah. just that basic sustained attention or just kind of checking in like right after their diet was upgraded to make mm-hmm. sure that they're doing okay. Yeah. Um, in a functional setting, like right. they're at a table with other people eating You know, that's how much more naturalistic can you get if you want to see how they're doing with that. You know, you're not sitting in front of them watching them eat. Like, no one's going to eat the same when they know they're being observed like that. Right, right. Mm. Good deal. All right. Um, How do you collaborate with PT and OT on um, joint patients? So um, at our facility, they're really big on... um, trying to have a, an interdisciplinary approach to therapy and um, kind of treating the whole patient rather than all of three therapies treating separately and treating in silos. Um, and so primarily, I think what's most important for us is just to have an open dialogue with the PTs and OTs that are treating our patients. Um, just kind of, you know, seeing what they're noticing. Sometimes patients will present so differently from a cognitive standpoint mm-hmm. while working with PT or OT oh, yeah. than sitting at a table with oh, us. Oh, yeah. Like, I've I've had people do, like, verbal reasoning tasks with me, like, you know, sequence this or sequence that, and they nail it. And then PT or OT will find me and be like, I need you to work with this patient because they are a safety hot mess. Like, they can't sequence. Like, they'll tell me about, like, OT will be like, we were getting dressed, they were putting on their underwear over their pants, and when I ask them, like, if they recognize how this might not go well, there's no insight, but, like, literally 30 minutes before that, I had them verbally sequence the steps, and they they nailed it, like, effortlessly. Yeah. And so, it's things like that that make me realize that there, there can be a gap between the talking and the doing. Yeah. They can they can talk the talk, but they are not walking the walk. Right. Yeah. And that there needs to be a way that we can functionally assess and treat, you know, sequencing skills like that without feeling like we're doing OT and PT work because we never will and we certainly don't want to. Right. <laughs> but they also want the support from us and and with that cognitive aspect. Yeah. You know, supporting the cognitive retraining of that patient so that they are successful in PT and OT sessions. You know, no one discipline owns different activities or even just cognition in mm-hmm. general. Nobody owns cognition. So I think a lot of times, actually, our PTs are really great about 
doing cognitive tasks with patients during their therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially the patients who are higher level mm-hmm. physically. Uh-huh. A lot of times they come to us and say, what can I do to kind of incorporate some cognition? Nice. Yeah. And, you know, um, again, then going back to us, sometimes we literally might have the patient go through the sequence of locking their wheelchair brakes and standing up or doing a transfer. Of course, if we have been trained by the PT and if Mm -hmm. we feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, OT might incorporate some word-finding strategies or some functional language when they're working with a patient on morning ADLs. You know, it's it's very very much treating the patient holistically, which I think is cool. That is good. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, so it's, I think... The relationship building with PT and OT is one of the most important things in rehab Mm -hmm. because you really can't do it without knowing what they're seeing and what they're working on. And, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, did the patient mention this to you? Um, Something that's really important about their home environment or their prior level. And so we all have to be in communication in order to give that functional therapy, I think. That is so, so true. I feel like that kind of segues really nice into my next question for you about team meetings. Yeah. So at my facility, we have team meetings um, once a week per physician. So we have two attending physicians in our facility. And so um, once a week, the team associated with that physician will meet. That team meeting consists of um, all the therapy disciplines, um, the resident and the attending physician, obviously, uh, social work and case management, nursing, neuropsychology, pharmacy, dietary, and the unit um, manager. Mm-hmm. And so basically, it's a time for us all to get together without the patient in this type of a meeting um, and go around the table and everybody kind of gives their spiel. spiel. Mm-hmm to be able to see that whole picture of the patient. Um, We try and keep it short. And so really what we focus on is from my personal area of expertise, what are the barriers that I'm seeing Mm -hmm. for this patient to be able to go home right now? Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously for us, we mentioned their um, level of cognitive functioning. What's the level of severity and in what domain? Um, or language, or dysphagia, or voice, or whatever it is that you're working on. Um, But it's super important to hear kind of what the other disciplines say. Um, So obviously PT and OT kind of give their piece, and we pretty much are in communication anyway, and so we know we kind of might have a picture of what's going on there. Um, But case managers, social work, will talk about the patient's barriers from a... uh, family or home setup standpoint and kind of things that we might need to be considering like hey they don't have the support that you guys are recommending so how can we work around this Mm. um nursing has a lot of great insights too I mean they are the ones spending the most time with these patients and so it's super important to kind of hear what they (laughs) say the nurses know everything they do (laughs) they really do yeah and they see so much Mm mm-hmm Um, Neuropsychology is an interesting one for us. Um, When we think about how incredibly multifactorial cognition is, I I keep going to cognition because that's one of the biggest things that we address in my facility specifically. I know it's not that way everywhere. Um, But when we think about cognition and how multifactorial it is, Um, neuropsych can really help us kind of put some of those pieces together in terms of what is actually causing this. 
Um, Because a lot of times it's not what you typically think, like a neurological event or something really cut and dry. Um, There's things like the anxiety and psychiatric history, depression, Mm -hmm. and what have you. Um, But neuropsych also does cognitive screens on our unit too to kind of, in a sense, give their piece on where that patient is at cognitively and kind of what then together with their other areas, what might be causing some of that. So it's kind of, it's almost like a little check for us too. Are they seeing the same things that we're seeing? Mm. Typically mm-hmm. in my facility, they go in and just do a mocha or a slums. And so we're doing a lot more and we're seeing that patient every day. But um, it is kind of nice to see how the patient did for somebody else at a different yeah. period of time. Yes. Right. Yeah. Oh no. I'm, yep. I know all about that. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that your weekly team meetings are, um, just you guys and not with the patient. Um, mm-hmm. At another facility, the doctor and the team actually rounds to the patient's room. And so we just go down the hall to each of the patients that are on his particular I don't, list that he's overseeing their care for. And we have the meeting with the patient. Mm-hmm. And so then the patient knows exactly where he is or she is in the um, overall scheme of recovery they can ask those questions to the doctor, like, you know, basically the patient's also asking, like, what barriers are there in place? Right. And the doctor is talking about that to the patient. This is what we want to see before we feel comfortable that you're ready to go home. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's back and forth there because there's definitely been patients in the past in these meetings that are like, I want to go home tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Make this happen, you know? And so the doctor is very respectful and, you know, tells them what they're concerned about. But ultimately, like, will like listen to the patient, like takes that into consideration. Doesn't just say, well, I'm the doctor and I know best. Mm -hmm. They're like, I hear you. I know what you want to do. Let's consider these other factors. Cause sometimes, you know, like caregivers will be there too. They've even been called and put on speakerphone to be a part of the meetings. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really awesome. Yeah. But I also know that it is good to have team meetings where the patient is not present. Yeah, it is. And I don't know. It, Without making it sound bad, it sometimes is super helpful to have these conversations without the patient. It, it really just depends on the patient. I will say if there is a time or a circumstance where we need to meet with the patient or with the family, we do have those meetings too. They're not automatic for every patient. It's kind of on an as-needed basis where we'll schedule family meetings and get whoever in that we need um, to come attend this meeting. And then it's kind of the same type of thing. Mm-hmm. go around and discuss kind of our, our role and the barriers we see and then kind of problem solve together, have an open dialogue. So we get a little bit of both, which mm-hmm. is nice because yeah. sometimes there's a need for one type of meeting over the other. Um, also, usually during team meetings, there's a discussion about like discharge date. Mm-hmm. Um, a big part of that is what insurance will approve. But a lot of times um, doctors can go back and forth on that and they can uh, delay the discharge or advance the discharge. And so um, when a date is decided, like the who then goes and updates the patient and the family? That is done by social work in our facility. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually after our team meeting, they'll stop in and um, give the patient a quick update, write the date on a board where they can see it on the whiteboard in their room, and then they'll usually call the family and let them know. Okay. So oh, we cool. kind of have to be careful giving discharge dates as therapists, we kind of want to make sure that it's set in stone so that the patient isn't getting mixed messages. So yeah. we usually leave that for social work. That's good. So is it social work? Do they, ever, after every 
weekly meeting? Do they kind of round and kind of update patients on like, here's how things are going. This is what we're looking at. They do that? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty curious. sure that after every single meeting, they'll, whether it's that day or the next day, they'll kind of just update the patient on any changes that were made in the meeting or what the date is and that type of thing. Yeah. See, I, that's another thing. Like, everywhere, every hospital does it so different. Uh-huh. Every inpatient rehab does things. And, and the obviously, in, in my case, the, the specific doctor prefers it this way. Mm-hmm. And that's his chosen method, and that's what, that's what he does. Um, so, yeah. everywhere's a little bit different. It is. Um, all right. Well, something else unique about inpatient rehab are FEM scores. Tell me a little bit about FEM scores. Yes. So FEM stands for Functional Independence Measure. And it's basically a rating scale that attempts to measure and capture the burden of care of a particular patient. So we assign them a score um, ranging from 1 to 7 in a particular area um, where 1 represents total assist. So So, the patient needs complete assistance to carry out this task. They're literally doing nothing in this area. They need 100% assistance. They are capable of 0% ability in this section that you're grading. Right. Um, All the way up to 7, which is complete independence. Um, So kind of in that range in between, we think about a a 2 being like a max assist with something. Um, moderate, minimal, standby. Patients who get a six um, are modified independent, so they're able to basically perform this task independently, um, but they might need some sort of modification. So when we think about our areas, it's maybe they need extra time or they need compensatory strategies or supports. Um, so that's kind of that, that one through seven scale. Mm-hmm. So the purpose of the FEM is... Um, to, first of all, kind of show insurance that this patient needs assistance. They need help and they need to be in rehab because they're a high burden of care. Mm -hmm. And so by being able to assign that lower FIM score, it's just kind of a um, standard way of showing that this patient needs to be here. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it also shows their progress. So we FIM them um, when they first come to us. And then for sure, again, when they leave, um, we typically FIM them every day or every couple days. But um, those are the times when it's most important to kind of show where they were when they got to us and where they are um, now when they are leaving. So these patients are FIMed in 17 different areas, um, FIMed by PTOT, nursing, and speech. Um, our primary areas that we FIM, we have five. So we rank the patient in terms of their comprehension expression, their social interaction, problem solving, and their memory. So as you can imagine, the speech fins are not as cut and dry as PT and OT. They're the furthest thing from black and white. They are so subjective in my (laughs) opinion. They are. They are. And there can be discrepancies between therapists and between disciplines on kind of where we see patients in, in those five areas. And so it's a little tricky um, there are percentage ranges that are assigned to each FIM score. So, for example, um, a four minimal assist is a patient is doing um, 75 to 90% of the work and they need assistance in the other percent of the opportunities. And so, in a sense, that can kind of help you 
but it's still not quite that black and white. So, mm. And that's a wide range. I mean, yeah. all the way up to 90%. Yeah. That's high. Yeah. That's high level. It is. But there's still five, six, and seven above that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's um, just the whole way FEM is set up is very interesting. It is, yeah. It can be very tricky. Mm-hmm. But it, it has a, a good purpose, and it does, in some ways, kind of capture that, that progress. Yeah. Every year when I have to take the FEM test to, like, recertify or whatever in it, we have to take the test on all 17 scores, yeah. even though we only do five of them. And so, you know, you have to kind of study up before, and it's open book, so you've got the material there, and you kind of work your way through it. Even then, I consistently miss things within the five that we do. Oh, me too. Because they're so... Mm, subjective. Yeah. I can't think of a better word to describe it. I'm like, yeah. I don't rate it that way. Yeah. And even when they try to standardize it, it is so, woo, it's a tough thing. It is. It's really hard, but. Yeah. So they tried to standardize something that is unstandardizable. <laughs> very much so. I haven't really figured out how to make transitions any less awkward than they already are. So we're going to transition out this episode and pick back up with Lauren as she fills us in on her favorite cognitive assessments and language assessments on our next episode. Lauren, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. This was awesome. This was super fun. Yeah. I'm really glad that you came and sat down with me. Yeah, me too. And before we go, just a couple reminders. Subscribe to the Speech Uncensored podcast so that you can keep feeding your brain with delicious bits of medical speech and language pathology goodness. Reviewing the podcast on your listening platform would make you a mega rock star and earn my undying devotion. So don't delay, submit your review today. And as always, I hope this podcast inspires you to dig deeper and as a result, your practice flourishes and nourishes others. Thanks for listening.